Good morning. So, uh, a little while ago, Michael Wierski was uh, just going about his day. It had been a rough year for him. He was, he'd been unemployed for a while, and he had uh, recently gotten divorced. As he's out running errands and kind of living his life, he stops in at the uh, Quick Check to get his weekly lottery tickets. He bought $20 worth of tickets, and he'd been doing that for as long as he could remember. Standing in line, and he gets up there, and he buys his tickets, and he leaves, goes home, and then he can't find them. He can't find his lottery tickets, which is, I mean, that's frustrating, right? You just, just money even more down the drain. It's just gone. Like, he gets, can't, can't find it. So he's like, oh, man, he's trying to think through where he left. He looks around his house, and then he realizes, no, I, I must... I must have lost them at the, at the quick check. So he calls the next day, uh, talks with the clerk, and asks if anybody had seen them. And it's like, what are the chances someone is going to find your lottery tickets? Well, someone did, and they t- had turned them in, and the clerk asked some questions, you know, to make sure that they were his. Um, and they were, and the, the drawing was for that night, and so he gets his tickets, he goes home, and he forgets about it. Two days later, uh, a friend of his mother's calls to see, uh, to tell, like, they thought a mutual friend of theirs had won, that a mutual friend of theirs had hit the jackpot. And so they're like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. And the, the, the guy bought the ticket at the same store that Michael did. And so Michael thinks that it's the guy that was like right in front of him in line. He's like, well, maybe he bought it, he won. So he calls this guy and he says, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't win. And so Michael decides to check and see if he had won, right? So he checks his own tickets on the lottery app, and then he turns to his mother, and he says, hey, that just said I was the jackpot winner. (laughs) And his mom says, what, what, what's that mean? Which is, I think, a reasonable question. And he says back to her, I... I won $273 million. That wasn't a big enough. Big enough. <gasps> $273 million. That's, that's a crazy amount of money. And his mom turns to him and says something that I cannot repeat in church. <laughs> and he puts the tickets down and he sits there watching TV for half an hour. And he goes and then confirms that it's really him and he's the winner. By the way, that's my favorite detail of the story. Not that he lost his tickets and somebody found him, but that he then watched TV for half an hour. Because I'm sure when you find out you just won $273 million, the immediate next thing you think is, all right, back to cops. (laughs) He won. Remembering is a big deal, though, right? He lost those tickets. He had totally forgotten them. If someone hadn't been kind enough to pick them up and turn them in, he, he would have lost out on that. Remembering is a big deal. And the story that we're going to look at this morning talks about that, that same thing, that remembering is a big deal. It's really important. As we continue our series on the book of Exodus called The Getaway, if you were here with us last week, that, you know, Jerry talked about the first nine plagues that God brought upon Egypt. Uh, oftentimes, people who aren't even familiar with the Bible have heard in some way about these, these plagues. So Jerry kind of walked through the first nine plagues, and we're going to look at the, the t- pick up from where that left off and look at the 10th plague. 
Now, Moses and Pharaoh had this interaction. Really, it starts by God saying, hey, you're going to have a talk with Pharaoh, and here's how it's going to go. It's not going to go well. Pharaoh is not going to let you leave. And so I'm going to have to bring this 10th plague. This is the last plague, the final plague. And when I bring this plague, he, he will let you leave. In fact, he will want you to leave so much that, that he will hurry you out. He'll throw you out of, of Egypt. Because the 10th plague was, was serious. If you were here, you might be thinking, well, they, they sounded pretty serious. I mean, a giant horde of locusts that ate everything sounds like kind of a big deal. But the 10th plague was even more significant. The 10th plague is where God sent the angel of death to bring about the death of every firstborn in Egypt, from, from the house of Pharaoh all the way down to the lowest slave, even to the cattle. The death of the firstborn. But God tells him, just like he'd been doing with the last couple of plagues, that, that he's going to treat Egypt and Israel differently here, that he's going to protect his people, that they're not going to experience this plague the same way. And he gives them instructions, some very specific instructions about what they need to do in order to avoid being part of this plague, being trapped underneath this plague. Very specific instructions. They need to take a perfect lamb, right? A perfect lamb, not your one-eyed, like three-legged lame goat that like poops on himself. Not... That's the goat, that's the lamb you're real excited about getting rid of. No, you have to take a perfect lamb and you have to cook it in a really specific way and you have to drain the blood out of the animal and save the blood and then eat this with your family and eat it wearing your cloak with your belt around your waist and your, and your shoes on and then you have to do something special with the blood. You have to take this, the blood of this lamb and you have to put it on your doorpost. So he tells him to do that, to take the blood and to spread it across their door because it's supposed to be a sign. It's a picture for them. This is what you would have seen on the, house, on the door frames of the houses of the Israelites because what God is telling them is that this blood will save you. This blood will spare you. That's why it's called the Passover. That's what God gives them any instructions for, that God will literally pass over their houses when he sees this blood. So the plague comes, and it plays out exactly like God said it would. God told them that a loud wail will arise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or ever will hear again. I mean, imagine if the firstborn in every family suddenly died, imagine a community finding that all out at the same time. What would that sound like? I mean, the pain as people cry out when they go into their, their son's bedroom or their daughter's bedroom or their husband's bedroom. Imagine what that sounds like, people experiencing the depth of that loss all at once. But God also said, but among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. And he's painting the picture that without him, there is great pain. But with him, there is great peace. There's great peace. After this happens, just like God said it would, Pharaoh 
throws them out of Egypt. He says, get out of here. And that's when the exodus begins, right? That's literally when, they, when it starts, when they start leaving Egypt as they make their way to the, to the promised land. There's a lot of stuff in this. We're going to look at Exodus 11, chapter 11 to chapter 13. If you have six hours, we might be able to get into like a, a, a percent of all that is here. But you have plans, and I don't know if I could stand for that long and talk that. That's a lot of talking. So we're really just going to look at three things. We're going to look at three things that, that show up in the way that God interacted with Israel here with his people. And the first is this. God wants you to respond. God wants you to respond. God sets the scene for Moses, and it's heavy. All right, it's heavy. The 10th plague is different from all the others that came before. Before, God had used the natural world to accomplish what he wanted. He used a strong wind. He used darkness. He used locusts. He used frogs. But for the 10th plague, the final plague, God himself stepped in. He himself would act. And unlike the previous nine plagues, this one couldn't be undone. Moses responded to what God asked him. Imagine how frustrating that must be. That Moses has been talking with Pharaoh for a while now and never hears anything other than no, never. It's never going to happen. Don't even think about it. It, No, you can't go. He's never heard anything but that. And then God tells him it's going to happen again. And not only is it going to happen again, but there is going to be so much death that there will be this cry will will come up that, that has never been heard before or since. But Moses still responded. He chose to trust God in that moment, and he went ahead with telling the Israelites God's instructions for the Passover. Now, it's at this point that I think we we need to really be honest and say, there's some troubling stuff here, right? It's hard to understand. Why would God do this? Why did he kill the firstborn? Did he have to do it this way? Isn't this the kind of stuff that makes people say, well, God is just angry, right? Well, truth be told, I I don't really know why God did it. But here's what I think. Here's what makes sense to me. Sin is a huge deal. Sin is where we fall short of God's standard. It's our rebellion from God. Us saying to God, I don't need you, and I can find good on my own. I can find good apart from you. Sin is a gigantic deal, and the penalty for sin is death. And this final plague is a picture of the reality that awaits us all if we don't know God, trust him, and surrender our lives to him. The tenth plague is a picture of what awaited the Egyptians at the end of their natural lives if they didn't surrender to God. But another thing I think God is doing here is that if you remember back in Exodus 1, Pharaoh was so threatened by the Israelites that he ordered all Israelite male babies that were born to be killed. So I think here God is turning Pharaoh's actions back on him, causing him to endure the consequences of his evil. God wants us to respond to him. He wants us to engage with him. I'd imagine that's why there were 10 plagues and not just one. God wants people to engage with them. Often our attitude is fine, fine, but on my time, when I feel like it. I, you know, not today, I got stuff going on. But there's urgency in this story. There's urgency here. 
And it shows up in several ways. One of them is the fact that they were to eat this meal ready to walk out the door because God is saying, the end is coming soon. You were getting ready to go. Another way is that they ate unleavened bread, right, which is bread without a, a, a raising agent. They ate unleavened bread because God is giving them this picture of you don't even have time to wait for your bread to rise. That's how quickly you need to respond and move. That's how urgent this is. And it's a fascinating picture, fascinating that he would do that because leaven, that rising agent, that yeast is talked about in the New Testament as well. It's a picture of sin, right? It's the idea that a little bit of yeast has a huge effect on a whole piece of dough. You don't put a pound of yeast into a loaf of bread. That's too much yeast. I'm not a bread expert, but it feels like your dough would be the size of your couch. You do a a little bit of yeast. This tiny little bit of yeast has a dramatic effect on an entire dough, and that's what God is trying to draw out here in its relationship to sin. Because rarely do we get ourselves into into messed up situations by going, hey, that looks messed up. I'm going to dive in with both feet. We're we're fairly good at avoiding those things, right? We're fairly good at, at, at... saying no to the the super obvious right up front in your face things. What normally happens is a choice leads to another choice, which leads to another choice, right? One small compromise leads to another small compromise to another small compromise until months later, we're, we're down this road and we go, how did we end up here? There's urgency to what God is saying here. He wants them to respond and respond urgently, not because he has any need from the people of Israel, but because they have a great need for him. God doesn't want us to respond because he's insecure and he needs the validation. God wants us to respond because we desperately need him. We desperately need to engage with him. God wants us to respond for our sake, not for his. So my question for you right now is, are you responding to God? Are you responding to God? I promise you, God is speaking to you in your life in some way. I promise you, God is at work in your life in some way. I promise you, are you responding to it? What's keeping you from responding? What's getting in the way? Is it fear? Is it an unwillingness to surrender control of your life? Is it uncertainty of what it all means? Are you filling your life with so much stuff and so much busyness that you you can't hear God poking on your heart or trying to get your attention? Are you responding to him? God doesn't just want us to respond, though. Right? He wants us to respond, but he also wants us to remember. God wants you to remember. Now, why would God care about us remembering? Well, I think there's a pretty simple reason. Because we forget all of the time, and God knows that about us, right? God wants the Israelites to remember because if you're familiar with their history, they forgot. That's like their thing. Their go-to move was forgetting. It's like they go on their own for a little bit and we catch up with them and it's like, oh, everything's gone horribly wrong. It's like they've forgotten everything again. If you want to know what this must have felt like for God, imagine 
what your relationship with your kids is like. That's what it's like. When you have that thought, didn't I just tell you not to do it? Yes, yes, you did. I'm glad you asked. Yes, you did just ask me to do that. That is literally, that must be what God feels where he's like, I just, for the love. Now, thankfully, God is gracious and patient and so holy, unlike me, because listen, if God was like me, we're all in deep trouble. God wants us to remember. And so one of the ways that we see him purposefully communicate that is he gave them the instructions for what's called the Passover. This is a hugely significant part of the Jewish life. It comes at the beginning of the year, and God gave all of these instructions. I mean, there is a lot of instructions about Passover here. There's even a whole separate holiday outlined in these chapters called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Like, God gives a lot of really specific stuff, and I think it's because God doesn't want them to ever forget this. He wants to keep it on the front burner, to keep it in front of their eyes, because I think what he's saying is, I want you to watch and see how powerful I am, how great I am, and I want you to see how much I love you and care for you. I want you to know that I have heard you, and I am stepping into your story to rescue you, and I want you to remember that for the next time that you think I forgot. God wants them to remember I think he wants the Egyptians to remember too. You'd have to imagine that God's awesome power on display here is something that the Egyptians will never forget. Never forget. They have all of these different gods, right, that they worship, all of these different temples. If you've ever seen pictures of Egypt or been to Egypt, there's these just massively beautiful, incredible temples to these different gods. And what God is saying here is that one of us is real and, one of, and the rest of us are not. In fact, it, In his context, Pharaoh was a god, right? Which is a pretty good gig. If you're in charge, if you get to be king and also say you're a god, like, I don't know how that doesn't cover all of your bases for having people terrified of you. But what a powerful image for Pharaoh himself when God says, you consider yourself a god. I am actually God. I am the god that is in control and has authority over life and death. In fact, it is so powerful. It's such a big image it's, it, I would imagine that it, that it confronted Pharaoh w- with such a, a stark picture of authority that when Moses was leaving, when, when, they, when the Israelites were leaving, Pharaoh takes a moment to ask Moses for a blessing because he realizes there's something different about Moses as God. Now imagine that picture. It's Pharaoh's, the guy who has purposely made their life miserable, has gone out of his way to torture them and torment them and treat them. And, it, and it's as they're leaving, he's like, hey, uh, could you do me a solid? Um, could you, uh, I know we're not on the best terms. That's why you're leaving. Could you talk with your God and like maybe just cook me up? Would that be okay? And it's like, Pharaoh, read the room, dude. But he's seen how powerful God is. Why all the hoops in this process for them to leave? I mean, we're 13 chapters in before they actually leave Egypt. Why all, why all these instructions about about? Festivals, why all these instructions about Passover? I think God knows we are quick to forget. And I think what he's doing is actually trying to encourage them, right? He's trying to encourage them. Because God knows that they've been suffering, and, and God knows what, what is coming next is going to be pretty scary as well. So, why give them instructions for what to do next year in celebrating Passover? 
God was communicating confidence that there would be a next year. God was telling them that no matter what it feels like now, no matter how overwhelming, no matter what heavy, there will be a next year and a following year and a year after that, that this is not all there is, that this is not all consuming, this is not the end of the road. I think God is giving them that hope. We're talking about next year because that's something to look forward to. How are you at remembering things? Now, I don't mean remembering your keys. You're all here, so you probably found your keys. Specifically, how are you at remembering how much you need God and how much God has done for you? How are you at remembering that? Man, folks, we're just not very good. We're just not very good at that. We're quick to move past that stuff and gloss over it. But there's value in remembering, and it's not just to celebrate milestones but it's to be reminded of who God is and how much he loves us. I saw a friend of mine this morning, and she said, today is the anniversary. I am four years clean today. And that is such an important thing to remember, not just because it's a milestone we're celebrating, but because what she's doing is pointing to the work that Jesus has done in her life. She's thanking God. I wouldn't be here if not for what God had done. That's the stuff that's worth remembering. Yeah. I'll... I will tell her you clapped. (laughs) What does God want you to remember right now? What does he want you to remember? Maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're struggling with that, and you need to remember that you are known and loved by the God of the universe, that you matter to him uniquely, not you as a part of a larger group, but you specifically, individually. Maybe you're suffering right now and you need to remember that God loves you in the midst of that, that this is not all there is. Maybe you need to remember that though you may experience pain now, that because of Jesus, your forever has been purchased, that you know that this is only for a time. Maybe that's what you need to remember. Maybe you just need to remember that when you do life on your own, it never quite works out the way you hope. And that's what I need to remember. That in everything, always, all of the time, God knows better than I do. (laughs) I need to remember that. What do you need to remember? God cares about you remembering because ultimately, God wants to rescue you. God wants to rescue you. That's what we see in these chapters, that God is rescuing the Israelites. It's finally happening The moment that they've been waiting for for a long time is here, that God is rescuing them. He's proving to them that he loves his people. He hears them. He hurts when they hurt. That God is stepping into their story to to bring them back to himself. Folks, that's the point of the entire Bible. God revealing his heart for people and how he worked to rescue them. And what, what God did here was to use a substitute. He used the lamb, the Passover lamb. Right? He took this lamb and said, someone is going to die. Death is going to happen. That's the reality of what we've earned for our sin, that death is going to happen. And what God did is said, the lamb takes your place. The lamb is your substitute. When he comes and sees this blood, he will know that your penalty had been paid. That's why he passed over those houses. The lamb was a substitute for the people of God. The lamb was the substitute for Israel. 
That's, folks, that's who Jesus is. The power of the story, I just, I love all of these connections because this points to the perfect lamb that would come, that just as this was a plague poured out upon the first, firstborn of Egypt, that God would ultimately pour his wrath out on his firstborn, on his son, the perfect lamb who would step into time, fully God and fully man, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. What God does is he takes your ledger with all of that red ink and all of the stuff that you've done and and your guilt and your shame and the things that you're embarrassed by and he scratches your name out and Jesus writes his own down and then Jesus gives you his ledger, his perfect ledger with no failures and writes your name down and he gives it to you. There is no greater news than that. There's no greater news than that. I don't have another gear. That's That's the highest I get. Jesus is the perfect substitute. I love the way this points to that, that God is saying through Passover, this is a picture of what's to come, that this is a temporary picture of what I will do and secure for you forever. I love how this one writer puts it. He says, the possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. We need someone to step into our place and it can't just be someone like us because they would have to pay for their own sin. You can't just substitute anything. You can only substitute the right thing. You ever put salt into something instead of sugar? Did it turn out the same? (laughs) No. We once had a guest over at our house who went to make her coffee and we heard in the morning, who puts salt in a canister? We do. Boy, was she disappointed with her coffee. Another writer says it like this. It's very simple. Either Christ bears God's wrath you deserve on himself, or you bear God's wrath you deserve on yourself. Jesus steps into our story to be the substitute for us. My dad is a pastor, and so I would travel with him sometimes when he'd speak, and I'd he, you know, I'd hear him speak a lot, and there are times where I'd hear similar stories. And one of the times, a story that I heard him share a lot is uh, about a, a young mom and a young boy out for a walk at night. They're walking down the sidewalk, and they see a car coming towards them, swerving wildly, crossing the midline of traffic and heading right towards them. The mom freezes. And she doesn't have enough time to do anything else. All she does is pick her son right up and put him right over her head. She takes the full weight of the truck on herself and she's killed. But her son is tossed 10 feet. He's bruised, he's scratched, but he's alive. She stepped into her son's story. She stepped in there and took the full weight of that truck on herself so he didn't have to. She took the full weight on on herself, leading to her own death so that her son didn't have to, right? She stepped in there and was his substitute. That's exactly what Jesus has done for you. He has stepped into your story. When you trust him, when you receive him as your savior, he has stepped into your story and received the full weight of your sin on him. That's what love looks like. God wants us to be rescued, and Jesus makes that possible. What do you need to be rescued from? We've all got stuff. What do you need to be rescued from? What do you need to be set free from? There are big things, like addiction, 
like your marriage is struggling, like, like financial troubles, you're, you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet. There are big things that we need to, to be set free from. But there's also small things too. Small things that can be equally as destructive in our lives. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you're just going through the motions and you don't know what to do. Maybe there's a pattern or a behavior in your life that you just can't break free from. Maybe you cope in unhealthy ways or you look for happiness in places where you know deep down you really won't find it. Maybe you're looking to fill your life with enough stuff so that the noise of busyness drowns out the loneliness or the longing you feel. What do you need to be rescued from? What is it for you? Because folks, this door is the key to our rescue. This door is the key to our rescue. But it looks a little different for us. That's what our door looks like. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's what our door looks like. The blood left from where Jesus hung on the cross, where he stepped into our story to say, there is one way out of this, and it is through me. And he said, it's not for a time, and it's not for a season. It is forever. That is what our door looks like. Are you responding to God? Are you taking that door? Are you doing it right now? And if not, what are, you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you remembering who God is and what he's done for you? And maybe you're here and you're going, I don't know that I've ever, I've ever heard this before. I am so glad you're here. I, I sat where you, you did at one point. And what I hope you hear is that there are things worth remembering. That's how loved you are. What do you need to be rescued from? What do you need to be rescued from? And I want to challenge you. If you're here and, you're, and you, you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're thinking that's a really good thing for other people to hear, no, I'm asking you too. What do you need to be rescued from? Because we always need to be rescued. We always need to be rescued. What are you struggling with? What are you holding on to? What can't you let go of? What's getting in the way? What do you need? to be rescued from. Now you might be thinking, we don't really celebrate Passover. Right? We don't really celebrate Passover, so what does that have to do with, with us? Well, we sort of do. That's really what communion is. Communion is a picture of Passover. It's a picture of what God has done for us. It's a way we intentionally remember the way that God has moved towards us through his son, the way we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus and remember the way that his blood has washed us clean and set us free. We're gonna take communion in a moment. You've got a little pack. It should be underneath the chair in front of you. If you can't find one, that's okay. We've got ushers walking around. Just flag them down and they'll, they'll have one for you. And what you're going to do in a moment, not right now, but what you're going to do in a moment is you're going to peel the top plastic off to get the little cracker underneath. And that represents the bread. And then after we take that, we're, 
You're going to peel back the, the foil on the cup, and that's the, the juice that represents the, the wine, the blood of Jesus. We're going to be taking this together, and I'll let you know when that moment comes. But until then, the band is going to come and play, and what I want to ask you to do is have a moment with God right now. Allow God to speak to you and listen. Where does he want you to respond? What does he want you to remember? What do you need to be rescued from? Take a moment and allow him to speak to you.